You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and future. Today's episode is going to be a good one to get both a bit of your US Government 101 fix and understand how that relates to today. In particular, we're looking at the judicial branch and the US Supreme Court, the highest court of the land. They take a summer recess each year, and there are always a wave of decisions handed down in the last week of June. This year was no exception. From ending the practice of affirmative action in U.S. universities to overturning Biden's student loan forgiveness program, we saw a number of rulings come down often, but not always, split along the lines of who appointed them. Six appointed by Republican presidents, three appointed by Democratic presidents. To take a deeper dive into this topic, I'm excited to welcome USSC Honorary Associate Dr. Harry Melkonian, a practicing lawyer and legal educator who specializes in the U.S. Constitution and has practiced law in New York, California, and England, as well as here in Australia. Harry, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, At the end of this episode, I'm going to ask you for a by-the-numbers fact or stat related to the Supreme Court. Uh, Have you prepared one of those? Uh, Yes, I did. Okay, great. Um, Look forward to hearing it. Um, So just to start things off, could you help us understand these recent rulings from a broader context? So one year ago, we had the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, but also rulings on state gun laws, the EPA's regulatory powers, immigration and school prayer, to name a few. What were the major decisions at the end of this term? And how would you categorize them in terms of how significant they are compared to the rulings at the end of prior terms? Um, Would you say they're pretty average or were they more significant and impactful or less so? How would you kind of, yeah, rate those? Well, in comparison to the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, very few, if any, of these decisions reach that level, perhaps. But several of them uh, of the recent decisions, I think, would be construed as very impactful. Um, And the others that may have been more, let's say, technically legalistic would be less impactful on an overall basis. Okay. And any in particular that you would want to highlight in terms of what would be the more significant and impactful ones? Well, I think the uh, Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, the affirmative action uh, decision certainly has to be put at the top, possibly a more v. Harper, which struck down a uh, highly questionable constitutional interpretation that supporters of Donald Trump were pushing. Mm. Yeah. So let's let's take a look first, I guess, at the um, affirmative action case, which is essentially positive discrimination by U.S. universities to ensure a diverse makeup of the student body. And it undid several decades of precedent. So affirmative action was last ruled on in 2003. It was upheld under the Due Process Clause, the 14th Amendment. Uh, what has changed over the last 20 years? Why did this court 
changed the view um, from when it was last ruled on that it was protected under the 14th Amendment, and now they've landed on a different decision. Uh, yes, and you're referring to the Grutter case back in 2003, which was in turn based on the Backey case from 1978. And the fundamental thing that's changed, though this hardly sounds like a legal principle, is the passage of 20 years in that uh, Students for Fair Admissions was also decided under the 14th Amendment and decided under the Equal Protection Clause that uh, there should be one law for everyone. Now, in the prior affirmative action decisions, it was always argued and the court reiterated that this was a temporary event to help equalize the situation between minorities who had been discriminated against and the majority, and that it would come to a conclusion at some point. And in fact, Grutter even used, I believe, at one point, perhaps 25 years. I would say this affirmative action was a doctrine that seemed, it, it, it's one of these things, it's not entirely clear when it first occurred. Uh, John Kennedy spoke about it, but it became very concrete under Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, both of whom supported it. I mean, you might say, you know, Nixon supported it. He, he Nixon, This was one of those issues where Nixon did support affirmative action. I'm not so sure he was convinced that it would work. That's something else. But but he did. It was it did find support under him and expanded under him. And this time, it got to the court, and I think. Marie, in all fairness, this is one of those issues that the conservatives have just been waiting to get at. Huh. Kind of like reversing Roe v. Wade. Yeah. They've just been waiting to have that majority because I think it always bothered them. I think it bothered them because the arguments that came up in Students for Fair Admission were nothing new. Yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, though the only new fact, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts did write about this, was that Asian a group of Asian American students maintained that uh, affirmative action was unlawful because it prejudiced them, and they too are a minority, and a justice, the justices in the majority, just Chief Justice Roberts, made the point that since college admissions is a zero-sum game, if you preference one group, you are by definition prejudicing another group because they're not creating more admission spaces. They're just allocating them by, call it, quota. And therefore, the Asian Americans have a legitimate Right. This one was purely on ideological grounds, by the way. It was Roberts joined by Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett uh, with Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson dissenting with the exception that Justice Jackson 
The case involves Harvard and University of North Carolina. Justice Jackson served on the board of overseers of Harvard University oh. at, at the time, so she disqualified herself okay. uh, from the Harvard case, but she did dissent in the North Carolina case, which was the exact same issue. Yeah. And it, 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 it came down to uh, Roberts and said, you can't have this giving extra points for being African-American. He said, but what you can do, he left a little opening and it's not much. What he has said is that each student may be considered individually and if a student can show some special achievement or some special handicap, uh, that can certainly be considered on an individual basis, but not as a, see, the way Harvard worked as they would be considering applications, they would, in fact, make a special effort that to have this racially diverse student body that did not diverge from the prior years. How? That's what the court objected to. They said the law should be the same for all persons and all races stand equal. See, in the past, it's, it's gone through and the dissenting justices pointed out that this was something that promoted the 14th Amendment of equal protection by trying to remedy a harm to a historically discriminated group. And uh, I think the among the very conservative justices, this was something that never sat well. And nothing's changed except that now they have a majority. And I think it will have an adverse impact on uh, diversity and inclusiveness in uh, university admissions. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and it's interesting what you mentioned about that even President Nixon was supportive of affirmative action to a certain point. And then even on, on the flip side, you know, California, one of the most consistently blue states in America, they banned affirmative action uh, in 1996. So if a state as left-leaning as California would make that decision, it does indicate that even people from different sides of politics could land on different opinions on it, but it does sound like this case, it was very much decided along those lines. Um, those appointed by Republican presidents took advantage of the opportunity they had to overturn the practice of affirmative action. And yeah, 20 years after the last case, so not quite 25 years, but yeah, maybe they feel the statute of limitations has run out on uh, any injustices from the past. Um, and now's the time, or maybe it's opportunistic. Uh, but it's interesting that that change happened. I'm keen to know about the the case that I know you've said is a little bit different, but the case that overturned Biden's student loan forgiveness scheme, Biden versus Nebraska. How political or apolitical was this? And is it common to see the sitting president as either plaintiff or defendant in a Supreme Court case? Uh, yes, it's purely a technicality. It's not an actual lawsuit against uh, President Biden. Yeah. It's simply a challenge to an action by his administration at the executive level. 
and he is the chief executive of the executive branch. Uh, that's why it's Biden v. Nebraska. Okay. And was it a what? Did that one seem to be like decided along political lines or politically motivated, or what was the rationale um, for overturning uh, the student loan forgiveness scheme? It was ideological, but not connected to the student loan scheme per se, because uh, I don't think that was of a, a particularly ideological issue for giving student debt. But what it does do is it reflects, and this is something growing, and, and it's been growing for a few years, is an attack on what you would call the administrative state. Huh. Something in Australia we are accustomed to of where uh, executive agencies have enormous discretion in what they do. This has been a conservative issue in the United States for many years. They've never had the votes on the Supreme Court to do much about it. And because what Biden the Nebraska was about, okay, uh, the Secretary of Education canceled uh, $430 billion U.S. of federal student loan balances. Oh. A lot of money. Yeah. And it was done under authority. You say, under what authority was that done? It was done under something called the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students 2006, called the HEROES Act. And under the HEROES Act, the Secretary of Education could waive or modify any provisions applicable to student finance programs as deemed necessary in connection with wars, military operations, or national emergencies. Well, it wasn't involving war or military operations. It was in response to the pandemic, which was viewed as a national emergency. The conservative majority pursued what they call a strict textual interpretation of the HEROES Act. They said, the HEROES Act does not say you can cancel nearly half a trillion dollars worth of loans. The HEROES Act said you can waive or modify statutory or legal provisions doesn't authorize you to change the legislation or to do something like this. In dissent, uh, Justice Kagan uh, wrote, and she was joined by Justices Sotomayor and Jackson. It was, a, again, a political breakout of the court. She took the position that the secretary was acting within the discretion given by the statute, the HEROES Act. And it just comes down to this ideological question of how do we interpret statutes? And the conservatives have been arguing that too much authority has been taken by the executive branch away from the Congress and the courts. And uh, the liberals have been saying, no, that's not true. 
the executive is better suited for dealing with this type of thing. So it's a pure ideological uh, type thing and uh, a matter of uh, what in law you would call statutory interpretation. Did the statute say you could do this or not? And the conservatives said, I don't see it written there. And the liberals are saying, no, that's not how you read a statute. <laughs> and th that's how that case ultimately uh, was, was decided. It was it was a classic, uh, one side was on Mars, the other side was on Venus, and just weren't communicating very well with each other. So if it was really almost a technicality or it came down to, you know, just a very statutory decision and how it was interpreted, um, are there any pathways forward from here for the president on his student loan forgiveness plans? Or is it it's at the end of the road? He's already spoken out, um, you know, very strongly against this action by the Supreme Court. But if it really came down to you know, just the, this interpretation or how it was set up, the framework around it. Are, is there anywhere else they can go from here on it? Oh, uh, yes, there is. I mean, the court never said that the government can't do this. They simply said the executive branch was never given the authority by Congress to do it. Huh. So President Biden could present legislation to Congress, either saying waive these loan balances or give me the authority to waive them. The problem is, it's a political issue. Legislation takes a while to pass, frequently years. He has a Republican House of Representatives. And an election coming up. <laughs> and an election coming up. So the chance of getting major legislation through both houses is, is probably politically remote. Though, on the other hand, there would be an awful lot of voters who are in favor of uh, getting rid of half a trillion dollars of student debt. So I don't know what the political read on it would be, but that's that's the solution. Because the court was not saying, no, you can't forgive debt. They just, it was a ruling that the way the statute was written, you can't. They took a very narrow reading of the statute. Okay. Well, interesting. And I'm also keen to talk about Moore v. Harper, which you mentioned at the top, um, and that's the one regarding the independent state legislature doctrine, which purports that state legislatures can set election rules with little supervision from the courts. Uh, it was a key question of checks and balances, and it's especially salient after the 2020 election. What are the big takeaways from this decision, and how do you think we'll see this play out in the 2024 election? Well, I think that for the purposes of the 2024 election, this was a very important decision, simply because we know some of the arguments that the former president, Trump, is prone to make. What happened here, and I was disappointed in the voting on this decision. It was a six to three decision written by the chief justice, Roberts, <laughs> who is a conservative, and he was joined by Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, Kavanaugh, <laughs> Barrett, and Jackson. So very mixed. Yes, very mixed. And the dissent was Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. And personally, I was very disappointed that Justice Gorsuch would join in in this dissent. Because he has shown, I would say, much more moderation than Justices Thomas and Alito. 
And this, again, interpreted language in the Constitution, where Chief Justice Roberts made it very clear that the interpretation that was being pushed was nonsensical. And it should have been truly a unanimous decision. Because what it was all about was a clause in the Constitution called the Election Clause. It's in Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. It states, and I'll quote short, the times, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. That's been there forever. The argument that was being raised was, aha, the Constitution says that the setting of the elections is to be prescribed by the state legislature. That means that the governor who normally has a veto over legislative action can't be involved. Fifth. And that means that the courts can't be involved in reviewing because it says the legislature, it doesn't say the governor and the court. Well, just Chief Justice Roberts said, this is just plain nonsense. The legislature has all kinds of powers to enact laws. And of course, the governor under the state constitution has his or her rights. And the courts always, always have the right of review from the beginning of the country. And to just to latch on, and what happened was Justice Thomas just simply said with Alito that uh, it says legislature, so they can do whatever they want. It is very hard for me to see why any justice would agree with something uh, like that. And uh, uh, what happened was, what led to it, was sometimes it's not unusual that state legislatures, which are highly partisan, set up district lines, what we'd call electorates, that favor certain people and disfavor others. It's not hard to do that. And I suppose it's always an issue in every country about, hey, why are these electorates drawn the way they are? And you can dispute them. The question was, well, the Republican, the North Carolina has a Republican legislature, but a Democratic governor. That governor was probably not going to look fondly upon a redistricting that made it impossible for Democrats to win in this. It kind of concentrated all the Democrats into one electorate. And- yep, you get one. Everyone just round them up from wherever and you're in that one, and that's yours. Okay, we'll take all the others. Thank you very much. And uh, well, Roberts just said, look, judicial review has been part of American law in history since the beginning of the 19th century, you're not changing that. You're not changing it now. And he wrote a very strongly worded decision. He said, the authority of the courts to invalidate laws that violate the Constitution was an integral aspect of American law that was well established in 1803 by Chief Justice Marshall and Marbury v. Madison. And it was erroneous to construe the elections clause as conferring upon the legislature the exclusive right to redistrict such that its actions were beyond the reach of the judiciary. Full stop. By the way, nobody had ever subscribed to this theory. This was a new this was a new theory that somebody was uh, was arguing. But the, there was a real concern that they were laying groundwork for all kinds of funny business in the twenty twenty four. And still three justices 
sided with it. Yeah. And I, oh, I have to say this, the three justices who dissented did not disagree with what the majority said. Okay. They did not endorse this doctrine either. Okay. This is, this, they dissented on the grounds that there was no controversy properly before the court. They decided purely on technical legal grounds that because North Carolina had reversed its position or the lower courts had reversed their position, there was nothing to hear. So let's not hear the case at all. That was their Interesting. It was it was a dissent, but Chief Justice Roberts said, "No, we better hear this case, and we better hear it now." Uh, so they didn't raise Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. All they said was, "The court's not supposed to decide abstract issues. This is too abstract." Huh. Interesting. Oh, that's very interesting. Not much of a substantive opposition, you might say. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, finally, um, I'd like to talk about the 303 Creative versus Elenis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right um, case, but that's where the court ruled that a web designer had the right to choose not to perform services for the LGBTQ plus couples under the First Amendment. So this is a designer who created wedding websites, but under the First Amendment, they could say, oh, it's... um." that's impinging upon my right to free speech. Um, and you can't tell me what I can't, can it have to do, even though there is a law in their state prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. So how is this different from other cases that have gone to the court regarding whether people have the right to refuse work for certain clients based on sexual orientation? Well, in cases, and of course, this goes back to the civil rights era about the right to eat at a lunch counter, to go to a motel, to sit wherever you want on, on the bus. And the Supreme Court had been very clear that with respect to public accommodation, you may not discriminate. If you're open to the public, you're open to the public. Didn't apply to your own house, obviously, who you invite to dinner. The court never approached that stuff. But if you were open to the public, you had to treat the public. And in this case, the party involved said that uh, she was open to the public, she would, anyone who wanted her to do website work for them, she would, but she would not write things or create things that were contrary to her biblical beliefs. Okay. Now, this case really should have turned on whether this was more like a public accommodation than it was pure speech rights, because both are pretty clear points of law. The court has made it clear that the government cannot force you to say things you don't want to say. There are classic cases on that. Kids can't be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school, uh, even though schools normally require it. The classic case that I love to cite is a Supreme Court dealing with New Hampshire's laws, where some people in New Hampshire didn't want to have the registration plates on their cars because they said the state motto was offensive to them. And the Supreme Court agreed with them and said, yes, the state motto of New Hampshire, which, by the way, is live free or die. <laughs> Just subtle. It's subtle. Subtle. <laughs> Actually quite popular with, with a lot of people, yep. particularly young people, find it quite cool to have a <laughs> that says that. But to some people in some religions... 
that was offensive. And the Supreme Court said, you're right, New Hampshire, give an option. So in New Hampshire today, there is an option. You get live free or die, but if you don't want it, it just says scenic New Hampshire. <laughs> Nobody gets too upset by that. So you have these two uh, things. Government can't make you speak, but in public accommodations, yeah, there'll be some speech component. I mean, you go to my restaurant and uh, I say, I'll make you uh, a special dish. You can say, well, that's a, a speech thing. The court never got into that issue of a, wait a minute, is this an accommodations business or is this pure speech? What happened, and to me, what makes this case of perhaps of questionable value in the future huh. was that the state of California, of Colorado rather, stipulated, entered into a binding agreement that they could not refute that 303 Creative was engaged in a highly creative and expressive activity. Huh. Now, at the Supreme Court, the lawyers for the state of Colorado tried to argue, saying, wait a minute, the expressive activity in here is really ancillary. She's a website designer. She sets up websites for people. To the extent there's anything particularly expressive in all this, it's a pretty minor part of it. Yeah. And uh, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, said, sorry, or sort of, sorry, that might be a good argument, but we won't listen to you because you stipulated that she was doing highly expressive work. You're stuck with that. <laughs> so really, what I would view as the most important issue in this case that maybe might have gotten a different result was never, was never dealt with. And I will say this, the dissent by Justice Sotomayor, which was joined in by Kagan, uh, and Jackson, she in fact said, look, there is a speech component to what Ms. Smith is doing, but this was really a public accommodations dispute. And it was a commercial activity. And by not hearing that issue, the majority has placed all of the public accommodations authorities now in question. I mean, things we decided more than half a century ago, are you putting in question now because of a legal technicality or a procedural step that a lawyer took? And it's, and it's a good point she makes. So we're going to have to wait and see how this case uh, is is interpreted. Hmm. And given that this is a, um, you know, it was a wedding website business, but now the case has been tried and it was determined that it was a very expressive business and this is determined that they were exercising their First Amendment rights. How far could that scope be expanded in terms of other businesses? Like what sort of service couldn't be argued falls under the First Amendment in some way? And could anything like that ever happen in Australia? Well, uh, I'll start with the last point. No, Australia is in a completely different position in that we do not have a rights-based constitution. In terms of personal rights, they are basically, with limited exception, acts of parliament. They're not constitutionally based. The constitutional freedom of speech in Australia is very, very limited to, towards elections. 
so-called implied freedom of living in a democracy, you have to have a certain right to talk about elections. It wouldn't go to something like this. So if in Australia, a law were enacted that uh, a commercial business could not turn away a customer for any reason, so to speak, you wouldn't have these constitutional questions. They They could basically do these things. In the U.S., every law has to be measured against those 10 rights in the Bill of Rights. Yep. And the first one, the First Amendment, which interestingly, uh, the court didn't base this on freedom of religion because she had raised it as a religious thing. And they just dealt with it as straight out freedom of speech. The government was trying to coerce this lady into saying things she didn't want to. Whether we want to say, should the court have decided it this way? I don't know. I mean, there was this statement of facts. The majority latched onto it. Now there's a precedent that can arguably use to attack all kinds of public accommodations. It creates more ambiguity than it helps. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And the dissent was, the dissent was right that the court should have heard the big issue there was, is this expression just ancillary to a public service, or was this expression really the big thing in the public service something minor? And we just don't have anything on that. Well, it's interesting. And in terms of like, for in the US in the future, could this, does this open the door for like a whole wide range of businesses beyond just wedding websites uh, to claim that they've are protected under the First Amendment? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, putting aside things that are obvious, like a bus line uh, and and a railroad, uh, I think that there are lots of businesses and activities where there are both public accommodation, commercial issues, and some speech issues. And as to which should dominate, this case really creates uh, confusion. You could, yeah, people will be trying, I have no doubt, trying to push it. As a practical matter, what limits this kind of litigation in most cases is that, and I know a lot of people who own businesses, uh, if someone, a paying customer comes in, it, they will generally want to accommodate that customer <laughs> And get paid. Yep. Most business people are are trying to make a profit. And there's there's that old saying that I only wish was always true. But you were here saying, the only color I care about is the color of your money. (laughs) If businesses would pursue that, we wouldn't have this kind of dispute. But all in all, what it reflects is that we have a court right now that is looking at things very narrowly and very technically to try to get to a result that they want to get to. Uh, And the Supreme Court doesn't always do that. Frequently, uh, and it's very much depends, of course, on who's serving on it. There have been times where the Supreme Court tries to look more broadly at things and as to what will be the implications of what we're saying today. 
it's one thing for a lower court to kind of be cute on something, to decide a case on, huh, you used the wrong size paper or something like that. But at the Supreme Court level, they should be trying to really resolve the issue. And, and this court, this is an example of where they're really not doing that. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to see what these, the broader picture that these cases uh, can paint for us of, of the Supreme Court, of the current makeup of the court that we have, which has changed significantly in the last few years. Um, but a lot of the justices are younger now. And so I think, you know, we will probably be seeing this makeup for who knows how long, but quite a ways to come. Very interesting. Um, now, one thing I mentioned at the beginning is that I'd really love to hear your by the numbers fact or stat related to the Supreme Court. What did you choose today? Well, what I chose was uh, really two things. Have there always been nine justices on the court? <laughs> I mean, not counting while someone's yeah. waiting to be appointed, but uh, have there always been nine justices? And should I say the answer? Uh, well, let me take a guess. Um, I did do a constitutional law course in uni. Um, I think the answer is no, but I can't think of a time when it wasn't. So I'll say, yes, it's always been nine, but I'm guessing that's not correct. <laughs> well, you guess correctly because the constitution doesn't talk about it. Yeah. it it's set by Congress. Oh. And they've changed the number six times Okay. In American history. It started out with six it has been nine for a long time. Yeah. And which leads to the second question of uh, which president appointed the most and which president, say recent president, which president appointed the least? <laughs> I will give you a hint. Okay. No president ever served more than two terms, excepting Franklin Roosevelt, who was elected to four. Yeah, because I was well, I was going to say I was like based on the numbers game, I would say FDR because he's the longest serving president. So if I had to go by probability, I would say FDR appointed the most. Um, but in terms of yeah, so I would say FDR. Although in terms of in my lifetime or the presidents I'm aware of with their appointments. I can't think of any presidents other than Trump who've appointed three. Um, that seems remarkable to me. But FDR served for a long time. So I would guess he did the most. Um, the fewest, I'm sure there would have to be at least some presidents who've appointed zero. Or what's the um, President William Henry Harrison, who like died 30 days after taking office? Surely he didn't appoint any justices. But why don't you tell me what's the right answer? Okay. The... And you're right, Harrison didn't appoint any justice. <laughs> we don't normally count him for anything. Yeah. <laughs> the poor guy. And, and those 30 days, he was real sick. He was in bed for those 30 yeah. days. Um, but in terms of uh, in your life or my lifetime, uh, Jimmy Carter never appointed anybody. Okay. But historically, you had a good guess on FDR appointing the most, but not quite. Okay. Because you missed the obvious one. Okay. Who would you guess would be the most obvious president? And that's oh, the George one. Washington. Because he appointed everybody. 
<laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he appointed the entire federal government. <laughs> and he, uh, he back then the court was six. He appointed six justices. Four of them left the court during his time. So he appointed another four. So he appointed a total of 10. Oh, wow. Wow. Very impressive. Oh, that's so fascinating. Well, I, I enjoyed that. And thank you so much for joining us today. I was looking forward to having the opportunity to ask you my burning questions on this topic. Um, and as we're working through this wide range of decisions that have been handed down and what they mean for the U.S., I feel like I've got a much better understanding and a framing of the nuances and differences between a lot of these very significant decisions. Um, and as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest to our listeners. So we have our technology and security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy, USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes include our readout from the White House National Security Council staff, Kirk Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Vera Rapp-Cooper. Um, and our interview with Qantas CEO Ellen Joyce and former U.S. Ambassador John Barry, as well as our researcher responses to the AUKUS report. Um, you can find all of these on our website, ussc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, Harry, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me.